a mere man claiming that the world should follow him, that would be the rantings and ravings of a madman. That is, if he were a mere man. But notice what John says about him in John 1.18. No one has ever seen God, the only God, speaking of Jesus, who is at the Father's side, he has made the Father known. Astounding claim. Look at verse 29, the witness of John the Baptist. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In verse 33, John the Baptist said, I myself did not know him. That is, I did not know what he looked like. I had not met him. But he who sent me, the Father, to baptize with water, said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, that is, in the form of a dove, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And John the Baptist said, And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. This is the one who claims equality with God. This is the one who claims to be of the same essence with the Father. An astounding claim. So when Jesus says, follow me, if his claims are true, and if he is in fact equal with God, then he's not like the rest of those in the history of the world, even those who are living today who say, follow me. Some supposed great religious leader, follow me, follow my teachings. Follow my life, follow my ways. If it's true of Jesus, then it isn't true of all of the others. And Jesus even said something remarkable, and I left off last time in this account of his relationship, his initial relationship with Nathaniel. Look at verse 45 of John 1. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit or guile. Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? Jesus answered, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. You see, that's no mere man. He saw with his omniscient eyes the person of Nathanael and what he was doing. And he may have even been reading a portion of the scripture because this is a colloquialism that might suggest that he was studying the scripture while he sat under that fig tree. Nathaniel, according to verse 49, answered him, Rabbi, which means teacher, you are the Son of God. He recognized it. He understood the claim of Jesus. He knew that this was no mere man. No wonder Jesus says, follow me, and men follow. You're the King of Israel, he says. Jesus answered him, verse 50, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? 
you will see greater things than these. And then a most astounding claim in verse 51. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now, if he is only a mere man, this is blasphemy. Because this is actually an attribution of what we find. Turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 28. This is a reference. This is Jesus, in a sense, linking himself to Jacob, who you know was later called by God what? Israel. Israel. And Jesus is making an astounding claim and saying, do you remember Nathaniel when you read in the scripture about Jacob, one of our forefathers? And here's the account of it. Chapter 28, verse 10, Jacob left Beersheba and went, went toward Haran. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and laid down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed. And behold, there was a ladder or a flight of steps or stairs set up on the earth. And the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. By the way, there might even be some significance here that the angels already being on the earth were first ascending and then descending. Not first descending from heaven, but already being here. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, capital L-O-R-D. I am Yahweh, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south, and in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on the top of it. He called the name of that place Bethel, which of course means house of God. The name of the city was Luz at first. And Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God and this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house, house, Bethel. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. Jesus borrows this very account and he says to Nathanael, if you want to see the house of God, if you want to see the dwelling of God, then you need to look no further than myself. You are Jacob, Israel, and I am the king of Israel. 
and you said it yourself. This is an astounding claim. And this is Jesus taking the truth of being the Son of Man who is the very link between heaven and earth. If you want to see a ladder, if you want to see a series of steps that go from heaven to earth, then here he is. It's not a thing, it's a person. And the person of Jesus, Jesus the Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, is the vital link. He's the mediator between heaven and earth. That's what he's saying. In 1 Timothy 2, 5, there is one mediator between God and men, and who is it? The man, Christ Jesus. Look at John chapter 3. He says essentially the same thing to Nicodemus in verses 12 and 13. He says, Nicodemus, if I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? I'm the link between heaven and earth. Then verse 13, no one has ascended in the heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. I am the link for Israel, beginning with Jacob, in that dream, by the promise of God the Father, I am the Son of Man, and I am the link between heaven and earth. Astounding. And if his claims are true, then when Jesus says to you and to me and to others, follow me, we are most obligated to follow. We are most joyfully following because Jesus is the King of Israel. Jesus is the Savior. Jesus is the Lord. Now, last time, I talked to you about a key word. You remember what that key word was that I introduced last Sunday? It was the word urgency. Urgency. You and I are like a living chain of human beings that from the very first time Jesus called these disciples to himself, right here in John 1, you and I are linked together in an organic relationship with those first disciples in the institution later of the church, and then by the apostolic command that you and I, by Jesus' own authority, are to make disciples of all nations, right? Not just the Jewish people, not just Jesus being the king of Israel, but Jesus being the king of all of those who would submit to his lordship. And Jesus, in John chapter 1, is calling men to himself. And I introduced that to you last time. And I said, all of us should have a sense of great urgency about our lives to continue this legacy of discipleship in which Jesus first calls these men, who then call other men, who then call other men to Jesus and the discipleship that we ought to invest because of what has been invested in us. So we have a sense of urgency. God has us on a mandate just as he called these disciples and just as the apostles called others to Jesus, we're calling others to Jesus. And you say, all right, I buy that, I agree with that, 
I am a part of 2 Timothy 2.2. 2, and the things which you've heard from me, Paul says, these things entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. And you remember I said last time that there are five chains in that legacy of discipleship. Jesus taught Paul. So Jesus, Paul, Paul teaches Timothy, the one to whom he's writing in 2 Timothy 2.2. 2, and then Timothy is to pass that on to faithful men who will then pass it on to others also. And you know who the others also are? Us. We're, we're a part of that legacy. And so in one verse, in 2 Timothy 2.2, 2, we see the chain of five generations, as it were, of discipleship calling men and women to submit themselves to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. He's our master. And we introduced that to you last time. And I couldn't resist before we get to John chapter 2 and the wedding in Cana of Galilee to speak to you about this matter of the urgency of our discipleship of others, making disciples, the Great Commission. And I want to be very, very practical with you this morning. I want to show you how Jesus himself actually made disciples. Now, there are going to be some things that aren't repeatable with us. And I'll show you as we go along what those things might be. But the principles that are involved, I think, are very, very clear to us. And I want you, if you will, to take your Bible and turn to Mark chapter 3. Mark chapter 3. And I want to show you how Jesus made disciples. And I want you to practically apply these things to your life. And the first principle from Mark chapter 3, Mark chapter 3, is the principle of prayerful meditation. That's the first way that you and I can make disciples of others. Now, of course, we'll even have to say at the outset, we're not making disciples. We're simply being used by God as instruments to see God make disciples through us, through our witness, okay? And the first principle that you and I ought to have in making disciples, that is teaching the gospel, communicating the gospel to others, is this principle of prayerful meditation. Look at Mark chapter 3, and you'll find the account, and there are a couple of accounts in the gospels. Matthew has it, Mark has it, Luke has it, and John has it here, and John 1. So all four gospels have a sense in which Jesus calls these first disciples to himself. And notice how he does it. Mark chapter 3, verse 13. And he went up on the mountain. Stop there. You say, that's an important point? Yes, turn to Luke, and you'll see. Because what Mark leaves out, Luke provides. He was doing something on that mountain regarding the calling of these disciples. And what was he doing? Luke 6, 12. He wasn't just on the mountain. What does Luke add? Luke 6, 12. In these days, he went out to the mountain to what? <clears throat> to pray. And all night, he continued in prayer to God. Something was momentous. Something was important. Something was cataclysmic. What was he doing? Why was he praying all night? Verse 13. And when day came, 
He called his disciples and chose from them twelve, whom he named apostles. Simon, whom he named Peter, and Andrew his brother, and James and John, and Philip and Bartholomew, and Matthew and Thomas, and James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon who was called the Zealot, and Judas the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. Now this was, this was incredibly important. Jesus used a principle that I think you and I ought to use called prayerful meditation. He spent the whole night in prayer for the sake of the calling of these men. And did you notice what Luke said? He says that he chose from them 12. So there were more disciples than just the 12. If it were only the 12, it would be an easy choice, right? But here was a group of men who were following Jesus, they were following his life, following his teachings, and what Jesus was doing was prayerfully meditating all night to God on the holy mountain so that he would choose the right ones. And you say, well, and he chose Judas Iscariot. He was not the right one, but that too was in the plan of God. And he chose from among those disciples those 12, and that, my friends, is a phenomenal principle for your life and for mine. How so? Do we pray? Who do we pray for in our day-to-day -day living? Who do we pray to impact? Who do we pray for our witnessing exploits? Are you praying? You pray for those witnessing opportunities. You pray for the opportunity if you're in the market, if you're with a neighbor, with a business associate, and with all the rules and regulations that you ought to be following, working when you're working, if you're at business, if you're in the neighborhood and it's not a good time, pray. Pray for the opportunities that are before you. <clears throat> Ask God continually in prayer, or give me opportunities to be that living legacy of the discipleship chain that started with Jesus himself and continues on even to 2015. You, you ought to pray. You ought to pray for those witnessing opportunities. You ought to pray for those discipleship moments. And if someone you have prayed for receives Christ and you begin to disciple them and nurture them in the faith, teaching them the fundamentals of the, praise, uh, of the faith, you continue to pray. It's the principle, my friends, of prayerful meditation. I want to quote for you from the example of Jesus Christ, written many, many years ago by James Stalker. He says some very, very good things about prayerful meditation. He says, we find him, Jesus, engaged in special prayer just before taking very important steps in his life. One of the most important steps he ever took was the selection from among his disciples of the 12 who were to be his apostles. <coughs> It was an act on which, listen to this, it was an act on which the whole future of Christianity depended. And what was he doing before it took place? It came to pass in those days that he went into a mountain to pray and continued all night in prayer to God. And when it was day, he called unto him his disciples, and of them he chose twelve, whom he also named apostles. Stalker says, it was after this night-long vigil 
that he proceeded to the choice which was to be so momentous for him and for them and for all the world. There was another day for which we are told he made similar preparation. It was that on which he first informed his disciples that he was to suffer and die. This is evident that when Jesus had a day of crisis or difficult duty before him, he gave himself specially to prayer. Stalker says, would it not simplify our difficulties if we attacked them in the same way? It would infinitely increase the intellectual insight with which we try to penetrate a problem and the power of the hand we lay upon duty. The wheels of existence would move far more smoothly and our purposes travel more surely to their aims if every morning we reviewed beforehand the duties of the day of God. Pray. Pray. If the perfect, sinless Son of God, Jesus himself, prayed, even spending all night in prayer to God for the momentous decision of choosing the apostles of the church of Jesus Christ. Would it not be that for us as finite, sinful human beings, needing to make good decisions, especially upon those to whom we need to witness the gospel of Jesus Christ, isn't it for us even the more greater opportunity to pray. We don't have the kind of sinless, perfect relationship with the Father as Jesus had, and yet he spent all night in prayer to God. Should we not ourselves spend as much time in prayer as we do almost anything else, especially for the impact that you and I are supposed to have on a world that needs Christ? Always praying for those opportunities, always looking for the opportunities, always asking God for insight, for guidance. Lord, who do you want me to talk to? Who do you want me to disciple? We're going to talk in a moment about another one of these principles. But I should say here, every person that comes across your path, even as a person who is a professing Christian like you, and they say to you, disciple me, nurture me, help me, teach me. You ought to be praying about that. You ought not just to assume that that person is a person for whom you should decide. Pray about it. Pray and ask God what he wants you to do. Pray and ask him, Lord, is this someone that you should have me disciple? In fact, let's go to that second point. Not only prayerful meditation, but that very point, careful selection. Careful selection. <coughs> Go back to Mark chapter 3, and you'll see in verse 13, Mark reports, And he, Jesus, called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. Don't miss that. And he called to himself those whom he desired, those twelve, and they came to him. He carefully selected them. He certainly did. And in verse 13 of Luke 6, and when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them 12. There were a lot of disciples. There were a lot of them. And when these disciples were following Jesus, he always had a crowd. 
He always had those who wanted to be healed. He always had those who seemingly wanted to be instructed. And yet, not all of those disciples, even by name, were true disciples, genuine disciples. In fact, turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 6, or excuse me, John chapter 6, and you'll see that Jesus made it hard to be a disciple. He made it hard. He made it challenging. In John chapter 6, Jesus talks, beginning in verse 52, about this strange reality. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. And of course, admittedly, these would-be disciples are listening to such a teaching from Jesus, and they're saying, what does he mean? What is he referring to? And some of them were just perplexed to the max. Verse 60, when many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man, notice this, ascending to where he was before, going to heaven? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is of no avail. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. You see, not just because someone says they're a disciple of Jesus, they really are a disciple of Jesus. And even Jesus had this same reality in his own day, much less ourselves and our own day. Not everybody who says they love Jesus loves Jesus. Not everybody who comes to church is a true follower of the Lord. Not everybody who gives money in an offering. Not everybody who prays publicly. Not everybody who is philanthropic with either their life or their money is truly a disciple of Jesus, even if they say they're doing it in the name of the Lord. In fact, it got so bad with this hard teaching, these hard sayings of Jesus. John 6, 66 says, after this, after these statements of Jesus, his indictment of those who are unbelieving, it says many of his, his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. They were following him no more. Carefully, Select. Carefully select. You say, well, how do I do that? How do I carefully select? Well, this is, this is what Matthew says. This is what Jesus taught his disciples. I'm just teaching you the principles of what Jesus himself taught. And in Matthew chapter 10, this is what he says. He sends them out. He sends these 12 apostles out. And according to Matthew chapter 10, this is what he says to them in part, verse 11. And whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. Find like-minded persons who, who can affirm the journey that you're on, who, who affirm uh, the witnessing and the teaching and the proclaiming and the preaching that you're doing. 
And you stay there with them. They didn't have hotels. They didn't, they didn't have the kind of conveniences that we had. They either stayed out in the marketplace, they stayed out in the square, they spent the night there, or if someone saw them and they wanted to be hospitable and they welcomed them in, and if one of those disciples were saying, I'm a follower of Jesus and I'm proclaiming Jesus as the King of Israel, Jesus of Nazareth, and if they found someone who affirmed such a thing, they would say, come in, stay with us. We're going to accommodate you. Whatever town, village you enter, find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. And as you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, that is those in the house, if they're receptive to your message, let your peace come upon it. Share with them. Talk to them about the Lord. Tell them who Jesus is. And if they receive that, if they're receptive to that, if they're worthy of that message, then pronounce peace upon that house. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. Leave. Don't pronounce peace. Don't pronounce wholeness, shalom, to that house. Why? Because they've rejected you. They're not worthy. Let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly, I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah for that town. Strong words. Very strong words. You know what, you know what the principle that Jesus is teaching them? Careful selection. Careful selection. Preach the gospel indiscriminately to all who would hear you. And those who are receptive to your message, fellowship with them. Pronounce peace on them. Have a wonderful relationship with them. And the ones who are not receptive, the ones who are not worthy, the ones who are antagonistic, the ones who are rejecting, then shake the dust off your feet. Pronounce a judgment upon them and if, in fact, you do, that judgment for them will be greater than the judgment that was pronounced on Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, there may very well be here some uniquenesses and an unrepeatable situation because the apostles, of course, were being given powers that you and I don't possess. But the principle is still true. Watch out who you're spending time with. And this gives you and me the principle that I taught last time, and that is there is and must be a sense of urgency with who we're spending time with. Here's the principle. Don't waste time. Don't waste your efforts. If someone is receptive to the gospel, then spend more time. If they want you to teach them, if they're desperate, then by all means, carefully select them out of all the others who won't. And pour your life, your ministry, your heart into those people. I was just talking with my wife the other day about this very principle. And we both agreed. And I told her of a couple of examples in my own mind of persons in my past for whom I did not carefully select. I, I assumed, I, I don't know that I even had the kind of prayerful meditation that Jesus had for the selection of the people that you're pouring your energy and life in and with and for. And in fact, in Acts chapter 1, in the very great commission of Acts chapter 1, this, this verse that says in verse 8 that you shall be my witnesses 
in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the uttermost part, coming right out of that, Jesus said, and go to this place, and go up to this upper room, and it says, and they prayed. They were prayerfully meditating. They were starting on their journey. And then Acts 2 comes, and they were given the Holy Spirit, and they prayed some more. And that's what you and I need to do. We need to pray, prayerfully meditate upon those that God wants us to impact. And you say, but I'm not Jesus, and I'm not one of the apostles. And you're right. And neither am I. And so you and I need to pray even more. And you and I need to carefully select because there are many persons, and I can see them in my mind right now as I'm saying this, where I spent so much time and so much effort, and they never panned out. They never responded. I want to go to the people to whom God sends me. And in his providence, I trust that he's going to send me because of the urgency of the hour to those who need to be impacted eternally for the sake of the gospel. I don't need to spend my time with someone who's not serious about Christianity, even if they say they are. Even if they come to church, even if they're around the church for a while, even if they're around the Christian community, even if they say they love Jesus, but if they're not serious, and over time, God will give in his providence, you and me, the opportunity to see their level of seriousness or not. And if they're not serious, then we need to move on. And you say, yes, but will that be hurtful to them? It undoubtedly will. But you and I, we have this mandate, and we have this living legacy of discipleship, right? And that discipleship is incumbent upon us to trust God, prayerfully meditating, waiting in his providence, in the selecting of those to whom we will have kingdom eternal impact. It's a great principle from our Lord. Carefully select. Thirdly, thirdly, let's call it purposeful association. Purposeful association. Not simply prayerful meditation, not simply careful selection, but purposeful association. What do I mean? Look at the first part of verse 14 of Mark 3. Mark 3, 14. Right at the beginning. And he appointed 12, that's what Jesus did, whom he also named apostles, and then notice this phrase, so that, for the purpose that, with the result that, they might be with him. They might be with him. That is a very important principle of our Lord. He is, he is carefully selected through his prayerful meditation, these men, these 12, these apostles, to affect the rest of the world throughout the rest of history. It's that important, the emergence in this embryonic form of the church of Jesus Christ, and he's carefully selected this, this group, this 12, and he's doing so so that they might be with him. That they might be with him. Purposeful association. Spending time. Why? So that he might teach them. That he might disciple them. That he might nurture them. That he might encourage them. That he might admonish them. That he might show them through his use of the parables. The parables of the kingdom. Through his didactic teaching. Through his 
His proclamation of his soon suffering and death and resurrection and ascension and return. And he needs to teach them and he needs to encourage them and he needs to admonish them when they are slow of heart and when they have weak faith. And he needs to spend much, much time with them. And so he does. And of course, as you know, for a period of at least two and a half, if not three entire years. Spending time, nurturing them, encouraging them, challenging them. That's what John 1 is all about. Nathaniel, Philip found you and he told you to come and see who I am. And I've shown you who I am. I am the link. I'm the mediator. I, I am the steps between heaven and earth. And you're going to see even greater things than what I told you. I saw you under that fig tree. I know you. And I'm going to show you even greater things than that. And when I do, you will one day say, this is a key to discipleship. Taking those to whom you and I are desirous of impacting and spending time with them. Purposely associating with them. Nurturing them. Testing them, teaching them, admonishing them, caring for them, encouraging them, being patient with them. That's what purposeful association is all about. You want to see an example of this? These 12, including, of course, Peter, James, and John, right at the top of that discipleship chain, in Acts chapter 4, you remember when these brothers were preaching, specifically Peter and John, in Acts chapter 4, verse 13? And when they, that is the scribes, the religious leaders of Israel, and when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were what? Astonished. Why? They recognized that they had been with Jesus. Now there's more than just, they recognized that these common guys, these Hicks, some of them of Galilee, were hanging around with Jesus. More to it than that. They had been, what? Transformed. Their whole lives had changed. Can you imagine being someone like Peter, a fisherman? And now you're standing before the Sanhedrin and you're preaching Jesus boldly? You don't do that on your own. You don't just crank that up on your own. It's through intense discipleship, intense nurturing, purposeful association. So that when you're in that situation and when the Lord providentially brings you to that situation, you're ready to act because you are endowed with the Holy Spirit and his power. And you've been instructed and taught and discipled and nurtured by Jesus himself. And you are ready for the moment, ready for the moment, ready for what comes at you. Including, by the way, intense persecution, intense suffering. But you've been well taught, you've been well discipled. What, what is the purpose of your association with people? It's to influence them, it's to nurture them, it's to care for them. And we don't have much time. Our lives are ebbing away, slowly but surely. I said to you last time, the Old Testament use of that word hand breath, that's what we are. Here's a hand breath, that's our lifespan, that's it. In view of eternity, that's it, that's what we have. And in that moment, 
Who are you impacting? Don Whitney says in his book, Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life, if you suddenly realized you had no more time, would you regret how you have spent your time in the past and how you spend it now? The way you have used your time could be a great comfort to you in your last hour. You may not be happy with some of the ways you used your time, but won't you be pleased then for all the times of spirit-filled living, for all occasions when you've obeyed Christ? Won't you be glad for those parts of your life that you spend in the scriptures, prayer, worship, evangelism, serving, fasting, etc., for the purpose of becoming more like the one before, before whom you're about to stand in judgment? What great wisdom there is in living as Jonathan Edwards resolved to live. Jonathan Edwards, one of his resolutions, resolved that I will live so as I shall wish I had done when I come to die. I, I want to look at my death, that day that I die, and I want to retrofit what I'm doing this time, not knowing when that time will come, and I want to resolve that when I look upon that time as I die, I want to live my life right now up to that point as though I wish I had when I do come to die. That's his resolve. And the Lord gave him grace to do that. This is us. This is what we're doing. Another writer said, how are you going to use your time, knowledge, and ability? Will you use it on that which is temporal or on that which is eternal? How satisfying it will be when we are close to death to know that we are leaving behind other people who, committed to God, His Word, and His people, are carrying out the work that we have entrusted to them. That's that living legacy. That's that living chain of discipleship. It's Jesus to Paul to Timothy to faithful men to others also to you and to others also after you. It just keeps going and going and going because that's the plan of God. His plan is to multiply disciples so that the church of Jesus Christ is built up and it's multiplied. And in fact, there are so many who are saved that even the sands of the seashore can't count them. And it's every tribe and every tongue and every people and every nation. That's the plan. Where are you in the plan? Who are you discipling? Who are you nurturing? Who's, who's been impacted by your attempt to bring them to the master discipler, Jesus? Fourth and final. Not just prayerful meditation and careful selection and purposeful association, but powerful proclamation. Powerful proclamation. You see the latter part of Mark 3.14 on into verse 15? He, he wanted to purpose, purposefully associate with them so that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. Now that's, of course, one of those that's unrepeatable for us, right? We don't have that kind of power. But what we do have is the power to open our lips and to talk about Jesus, right, to others. We don't have much time. Time is running out. Who are we talking to about Christ? Who are we bringing to the fellowship of God's people? Who are we asking to be impacted by the preaching of the word? Whether you do it or you bring them here for me to do it. We are running out of time. And we have, according to Jesus and his principles, the opportunity to powerfully proclaim the gospel. It may not be with the casting out of demons. It may not be by the raising of people from the dead. That is for these disciples. But the principle nonetheless is true. We can powerfully speak a word of the gospel to people who desperately need it. 
powerful proclamation. An opportunity for us to proclaim this great commission. And Jesus said, Matthew 28, and he said it to his disciples, who would say it to their disciples, who would say it to their, to their disciples, on to us in our own day. All authority has been given to me, and I therefore charge you to what? Make disciples. Make disciples. As you're going, make disciples, teaching them whatsoever I've commanded you, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And Luke 24 says the same thing. Jesus says, I commission you. And Acts 1.8, I quoted it earlier. It says the same thing. And those disciples were primarily tasked with that verbal command of Jesus himself. And that great commission continues on through the pages of Holy Scripture so that we, by secondary application, could take this great commission and say, it is my commission. It is my commission. I'm called by God to do this. Just as my forefathers, the apostles, did in the first century church, so I am commissioned to do this in the 21st century church. 20 centuries of the legacy of faithful apostolic preaching of the cross. And we have that opportunity. And we need to take prayerful meditation, careful selection, purposeful association, and powerful proclamation, and take these principles and say, I am ready to be a disciple of Jesus Christ in the ultimate sense by taking on someone for whom I could disciple. If you're a disciple, then you disciple. And when you do, and when you do it Jesus' way, with the principles that he's given them and them to us, then you and I are going to see a harvest of souls to the glory of God and to the praise of his church because it's in his name.